so. Uh, I'm, I'd like to start with the uh, prayer that's in the back of the uh, encyclical that the Pope wrote. It, he's got two prayers, one I can use this week and one next. Uh, this one is a, a Christian prayer uh, in union with creation. And then the, the, the other one is a, a more generic prayer for the earth that is good for people who are not Christian as well. <laughs> anyway, here's the Christian prayer. Father, we praise you with all your creatures. They came forth from your all-powerful hand. They are yours, filled with your presence and under your tender love. Praise be to you. Son of God, Jesus, through you all things were made. You were formed in the womb of Mary, our mother. You became part of this earth, and you gazed upon this world with human eyes. Today you are alive in every creature in your risen glory. Praise be to you. Holy Spirit, by your light, you guide this world towards the Father's love and accompany creation as it groans in travail. You also dwell in our hearts and you inspire us to do what is good. Praise be to you. Triune Lord, wondrous community of infinite love, teach us to contemplate you in the beauty of the universe, for all things speak of you. Awaken our praise and thankfulness for every being that you have made. Give us the grace to feel profoundly joined to everything that is. God of love, show us our place in this world as channels of your love for all the creatures of this earth, for not one of them is forgotten in your sight. Enlighten those who possess power and money that they may avoid the sin of indifference and that they may love the common good advance the weak, and care for this world in which we live. The poor and the earth are crying out. O Lord, seize us with your power and light. Help us to protect all life, to prepare for a better future, for the coming of your kingdom of justice, peace, love, and beauty. Praise be to you. Amen. Amen. I think it's a really beautiful prayer kind of captures, I think, uh, a lot of the, um, the different aspects of what we've been trying to do these uh, uh, five weeks also of um, taking questions of uh, uh, issues of the environment, but also Darwin's theory of evolution and then trying to join it to uh, the creed, huh? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, and to see how those things can kind of be integrated and uh, complementary to, uh, to one another. So for the, um, the last couple of weeks, we were trying to address especially the two aspects of uh, Darwin's theory of evolution. One of them is uh, descent with modification, and the other aspect is the uh, struggle for existence. Um, and we've come to know those more popularly as natural selection and survival of the fittest. But I think in a, a more positive context, uh, if we think about it as descent with modification, that can be inherited and passed on, uh, those um, random changes and those mutations and those things that uh, develop spontaneously in, uh, in the world, uh, you know, that uh, uh, is able to be uh, descent, huh, but with modification, that those things enable in, in the whole struggle for existence, since not everything can endure forever, in the struggle for existence, those modifications and those changes enable uh, species uh, to, um, to survive. And so our theory of gradual growth and evolution 
is that changes enable certain um, uh, descendants of species to survive, and that keeps moving us along in the evolutionary process. So we try to address both those issues by talking especially about the spirit and about Jesus. Uh, we address the descent with modification uh, in, in the context of the Holy Spirit, trying to understand especially God's ongoing presence and the, uh, uh, the issue of uh, providence. You know, how does providence work? When you have chaos, you have spontaneous change, you have mutations, you have randomness and all of that. How can we talk about providence? And we said you just have to be one step farther back in the whole process and see that God underpins all of this and allows creation to create itself and allows us to make free choices and decisions, but that God underpins and sustains and supports all of that, but doesn't interfere with it. And so we ended up by saying God moves us, but God moves us freely. <laughs> and now we can extend it even further and say God moves all of creation, but God moves the free process of creation. Huh? So creation is in free process, even while God sustains it, in the same way that we have free will, even though there's divine providence and predestination and all the other things that kind of underpin it. Huh? So God moves us, but God moves us freely. So however we figure that out. Okay? But in any case, that's the spirit uh, that's kind of behind, uh, behind all of that. And then we said, how do we deal with survival of the fittest or you know, struggle for existence? Huh? That life is always limited, that we could not possibly have a universe in which everything continues because there would no, be no growth, there'd be no movement forward, and in fact, the whole thing would just implode, you know, if, if things didn't die and things didn't change into other things or, you know, life or even inanimate forms didn't yield to other things. So there's always a struggle for survival, uh, and it's a natural part of existence. And we said, well, now how do we deal with all of that? And especially when we're talking about suffering and evil and animals eat animals and, uh, you know, in the, in the whole struggle for survival, some things survive and other things don't. And there seems to be all this death and, you know, other things that are part of the process of, uh, of life. How do we deal with that? And I think we said last week, in the end, we don't explain it. <laughs> you know, we can't finally uh, get our arms wrapped around it. But what we do have is the sense that somehow we can deal with it and that especially we want to see God's positive involvement in all of this. And we looked especially to the cross, uh, to Jesus sharing in all of that suffering, and to say that God embraces us in the middle of all of that, and God moves forward with us in the middle of all of that. And that ultimately it's not the last reality, but that God embraces everything. Huh? And so... Uh, especially in terms of Jesus taking incarnate existence and then being a living presence within us, uh, that Christ enables us to kind of go through the cross and go through the suffering knowing that resurrection is on the other side and that there is at least that element of hope and that element of love and embrace that's still there even though we can't, you know, finally, uh, you know, explain the, uh, the mystery of, uh, of suffering. Both those aspects that dealt with the Spirit and dealt with uh, the Son or with Jesus um, are all part of what we would call continuing creation. Huh? So they're really dwelling especially on the, the most, what I would consider the most important aspect of, uh, of creation, and that is continuous creation. Huh? That we don't think about creation as just a one-shot deal, but that in point of fact God is constantly sustaining and supporting, and that the, the basic uh, understanding of God is that we are contingent beings, and there is something that grounds us, 
There's something that underpins all of this. There's something that surrounds it. There's something that is accompanying us all the time in our life. So whether it's the Spirit or it's Jesus, whether it's divine providence, you know, and that indwelling of God that we describe as the Spirit, or it is God accompanying us in the midst of suffering, which we describe in terms of Jesus, you know, moving us through to resurrection and giving us hope in the midst of suffering. All of that is part of a continuous creation, huh? that God is constantly sustaining and supporting us as we move along. So we're good so far? That's three lectures, okay? <laughs> so uh, uh, to kind of bring us where we are now. So today, what we, we look at is, is what we can kind of center around God the Father, uh, but it would be what we could call original creation or what we can call new creation. In other words, where does it start and where does it end? Huh? And our way of kind of looking at all of this with an understanding that continuous creation is really what our experience is, and continuous creation is where we're really living, huh? and that's the important thing. Nevertheless, where does it start and where does it go is also part of it. Um, Elizabeth Johnson, in the book that we're following, you know, uh, Ask the Beast, you know, Darwin and the God of Love, Johnson says that in effect it's not our experience, huh? that our experience is continuous creation, and when we talk about the past or the future, we're really extrapolating out of present experience. So we don't know, you know enough to kind of explain beginnings and endings uh, in, in any way that uh, could be kind of factual or uh, you know, um, uh, within our firm grasp. Um, and that's why when we talk about beginnings and endings, we always fall into mythology, right? So continuous creation is hot enough, you know, with symbols of the Spirit and, you know, the presence of Jesus. But when you talk about beginnings and endings, now you really blow the categories, and we have no way of talking about it. We don't know what came before, our sense of presence and God and creation that we have, and we don't know where it's heading in any kind of way in which we've got factual information. So beginnings and endings always fall into mythology, right? And that's all of our religious texts deal with that. And, uh, and we need to deal with it that way. So what we're doing basically, I, I think in some ways, is extrapolating out of our present experiences and then saying that that gives us a, uh, a sense of trust. It gives us a sense of uh, well-being. It gives us a sense of you know, where things started and where they're going and gives us a, a sense somehow of, uh, of, of what this God is all about. I remember... Uh, uh, last week, a question was, you said, you're kind of starting all of this stuff out assuming that there is a God of love. <laughs> and, I said, and I said, well, I can't kind of demonstrate that to you. I think we kind of posit that, you know. But I think that this sense of ultimate trust is something that just arises within our, our nature. Um, I, you know, when we look at our present experiences, huh, and, and we try to figure out what's going on in terms of continuous creation, well, first of all, we have a sense that we're not ultimate reality, Right? And even science, I think, tells us we're not ultimate reality. No matter how vast the universe is, we always have a sense, you know, it's coming to an end. <laughs> and so, so all of that, you know, and that sense of contingency already starts pointing us to something else. And then what we start doing when we kind of have this sense of contingency, you know, there's something that grounds all of this, that when we talk about beings, there has to be something that's being itself. Or when we talk about beauty, there has to be something that's beauty itself. Then we start trying to figure out, well, now, what's this like? And I suppose we could come to conclusions that it's evil and it's vicious, but in point of fact, it's not the way our experiences work. Huh? 
I, I, you know, I think, uh, you, you know, I'm trying to kind of explore that question. You know, you know it's always good for me to give lectures because I get questions. I have to go home and start thinking about this stuff. <laughs> but anyway, you know, one of the things I was thinking about is that, you know, even even in in a world where th there's evil and and there's vicious things that are going on, even within that, there's always a sense of kind of positive value. You know, that like even among thieves. There's, you know, there's loyalty and there's fidelity. So, you know, what finally comes out all the time in human existence are things like love, fidelity, loyalty. I mean, you look at the Sopranos and you say, you know, remember the, 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 the series of Sopranos? And you say, vicious people, you know, in every other show, they're beheading people or they're shooting people. You know, it's really vicious stuff. And yet, you have kind of a sympathy you know, for that whole family, and you can see a kind of love going on and his relationship to the kids. So, so somehow, what gets to be our overriding experience, I think, even in the middle of, of vicious stuff, you know, and evil stuff, is that that value of love keeps coming out somehow, you know, that that's kind of the basic thing. And then I think we have a sense, you know, you talk about anybody, I, you know, my colleague Jack Hart, you know, talks about what we call his ultimate hope, you know, that, that we don't live, you know, a life, even take religion out of the thing altogether. Hope is always a transcending kind of thing. Why can a mother say to a little child, there, there, it's okay, you know, there, there, it's all right, when it's not all right, you know? In other words, there's something that kind of comes up all the time that I would call ultimate hope. And that ultimate hope can be translated also as ultimate trust. And that ultimate trust, I think, arises because we have a sense of infinite love. Huh? And so we say, why do we always posit a God of love? Well, I say, can't prove it. You know, I don't have a nice little syllogism. I can't get out of everything to get to some neutral position and kind of look at things and figure out, all right, here's what's right, here's what's wrong. But I think in the middle of everything, we are always in the middle, you know, of, of even in the mess and everything else. And what ultimately keeps arising is ultimate hope ultimate trust, and that trust, I think, builds on an ultimate love and a sense that life makes sense. Huh? And so no matter what, you know, I always think of Viktor Frankl's book, you know, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, you know, and you're in the most desolate circumstances of the Holocaust, and people are, are in, in circumstances where you say, no hope, huh? no possibility of anything. This is, just, this is just the awful, awful part of human existence. And yet even within that, you know, structures arise and support arises, and hope is the thing that overrides in the middle of it all. So somehow I say, I can't prove all this stuff, but I think that somehow my instincts keep pushing me in that direction. And I describe that as a sense of love, huh? that there's a God of love, and that ultimately the universe is sustained by that ground of being, you know, that holds us up, that is ultimately good, it's beautiful, it's loving, huh? that all of that is, is what ultimately sustains the universe. And I think that's all part of our experience as continuing creation. Huh? That's where it all is. Huh? That we're trying to figure out what's going on right now, and what's going on right now is always that we're contingent, but that contingency is all based on something that is really love and sustaining us. Huh? And that's feeding all the other things that we begin to say about God. And then we put it in biblical texts, and then they experience it in history, you know, with the 
slaves coming out of Egypt, and uh, and then we experience it to the hilt. You know, as Christians, we experience it in Jesus and his own confidence and his own sense that there's a God of love. Huh? And he calls God Father, and he's got an intimate relationship with that God. And then we have a belief that God, in fact, has raised him from the dead. We have a sense of his presence as well as that presence of the Spirit, uh, that the Spirit is really making a risen Christ present to us. And all of that is simply building up the same kind of images that I think everybody has somehow in the world where everybody starts with an ultimate hope. Uh, I think, you know, my colleague describes hope as a transcendent reality, that even the people who say there's no transcendent reality, if they're living hope, they're really pointing to a transcendent reality, although they don't want to call it that. And they'd probably be hopping mad at me if I claimed that that was going on. But I think, I think that that's part, of what's, that's part of what's going on. And so we simply build it up from a Christian point of view, and that, you know, that gives us that sense of hope and, uh, and love. So all of that is continuous creation. But then we go back and we say, all right, so now what's it like at the beginning? You know? And then we, we're really extrapolating from the present experience. So we go back to the beginning, and we don't suddenly change the pattern. We say, well, in the beginning, there was this vicious God. Huh? We go back to the beginning, we say everything starts out as a great act of love. Huh? And so when we point to God, it's God as father or God as mother, but there's already somehow in those images a sense that the original creation is also a creation out of love. Now, I think some things develop, and, and I think they're consistent with what's going on with our um, you know, uh, Darwinian perspective, although I think when they put together creation stories and they started talking about original creation, nobody had a clue about, about Darwin. But I think there are ways in which those texts can be read in our own context. We have to kind of reread texts, right? But I think we can reread them consistent with uh, uh, with the um, uh, Darwinian theory huh? and this God of love. So there are a couple of things that um, you know uh, Johnson uh, kind of points out when she talks about uh, original creation. Looking at the uh, the creation stories, she said you know th there were um, uh, various views that you could have taken in the creation story, and I think they set on one set that began to talk about a loving God who began this creation, so creation arises out of love. Huh? But what they had to do is they had to overcome, you know, other ways of kind of picturing things. One would be, I think, to make matter ultimate, right? So matter is, is all there is, and matter is ultimate. And I think our creation stories try to kind of counter that, huh? to talk about something that really transcended all of that reality, but transcended it, you know, in a loving way. And so our creation stories start, you know, with all of material reality, but the point that they make, no matter where you go in these stories, even before they had any concept of evolution, but we can still bring it to it, where they go is to say, matter is not the start. Okay? So God created all of this. So it, it, has, it has a start. Now I think, you know, one of the things that I keep thinking about is that, you know, it's quite possible that creation doesn't have a start in time. Huh? In other words, we don't know. And, and in fact, the more we keep thinking about things, and you know, science keeps telling us maybe you have multiple universes. And so I say, you know, once you start getting into billions and billions and billions, and the universes are getting to billions, I say, why do we even say that there was a start at some point of all of this? It's quite possible that the Earth is eternal. Huh? But the point that I think is behind it all, even if it's eternal, 
it comes out of a loving huh, embrace of a God huh, who gives it its, its, its uh, sustenance and its, its being and its existence so that whether the earth is eternal or not is not for us to know. We have no way of, uh, of finally describing that. So whether a beginning or an eternal universe, it's still something that comes from a God who is you know, timeless and eternal himself. In fact, the more I think about it, the more I keep starting to wonder if the earth isn't eternal in, in the sense that God's love is already effusive, that a love is always an outpouring huh, that kind of puts goodness in others, sees goodness in others, you know, and enjoys that goodness. So I, I could picture, you know, a, you know, an infinite God having an infinite universe as simply the expression of that love. But all of it kind of, um, you know, assumes that you've got a good creation and a good God and a beautiful God that really needs to express all of that. Huh? And that's what's going on in terms of creation. So if God was all by himself at some point, you can see how we're in mythology already, right? And we're in time, you know, but we're trying to picture God all by himself up there. God just needs a universe. <laughs> and so that's, that's God the Father. Huh? So it's love that is ultimately expressive. And it's love that sustains everything and keeps pushing it forward. So whether God had to do that from all eternity, can't even picture it. <laughs> well, eternity is always endless succession of minutes, you know, which is already a problem. But, uh, you know, that God is already sustaining a universe. Huh? But it, it's that sustaining element that I think is important, that there's a God that underpins it all, and it's a God of love that fills everything with, uh, with goodness. So, so in any case, matter is not ultimate, huh? You know, that ultimately there's something that's sustaining that matter. So they may picture it, you know, in terms of God plucking everything down here and God starting everything, you know, with big axe, but whatever. There is that bigger reality that's sustaining everything that we experience in our continuing creation. And so we know it is from the beginning, whatever the beginning looks like. In their own version of it, you know, the interesting things in creation stories, you know, is that they had gods everywhere, you know, and they were trying to figure out, you know, I mean, even other religions already had a sense that somehow there had to be transcendent reality. So their gods, huh, you know, were sun, moon, stars, you know, things like that. You know, you always went to that bigger reality you couldn't figure out. Well, creation story is, is a very handy little myth that handles all of that and said, you know, sun, moon, and stars didn't come until the fourth day of creation, you know and that we don't worship sun, moon, and stars because God created them with love, with sustenance, you know, with hope and all of that, but they're all created realities. Huh? So now we've got other concepts of how sun, moon, and stars come along. I always joke, you know, the creation story has light on the first day, but doesn't have sun, moon, and stars until the third day. You're wondering, you know, how they got light without sun, moon, and stars, you know, but they had a different concept, right? You know, light was its own substance, and the sun was simply a mirror, you know, that was the way they pictured it, so it only came on the fourth day. But however you understand all of that, they came on days, right? So there's something bigger behind all of this stuff that's sustaining it, and we don't worship sun, moon, and stars anymore. What's also interesting, though, is that even all the suffering and the other stuff, huh, there's always all we have is a good creation. Huh? It's loving from God. So if there's anything that's a problem, it's just that this loving God, you know, loved creation so much, that he told creation to go into free process to develop and create itself, right? So this God is not a God that fixed it all. He said, I give you free reign, and creation starts doing all of that. And, of course, while it does all of that, it gets to dead ends and, you know, and 
Not everything can be permanent, and so it keeps moving along. But God embraces it all with love, and everything we said about Jesus and, and the Spirit and the indwelling presence is there from the beginning, but, you know, unfolds itself. But, you know, so in the middle of all of that, there are all of these difficult things, you know, that we call evil, or that we call suffering. Huh? And they get represented in the creation stories also, you know, in the early mythology, those were the sea monsters. Huh? You know, when you wanted to talk about evil, you know, you had different ways of doing it, but sometimes it was Leviathan, or it was Behemoth, huh? so, you know, the big monsters that are out there, you know. You remember the old maps, huh? You never venture too far out on this flat earth because you get too far out and the big sea monsters are there, huh? So the maps always had dragons and, you know, big monsters and whales off on the horizon on the sides. You don't want to get out too far. Behemoth will, you know, swallow you up. So, so what you have there are all the sea monsters, right? And they're all contained, right? So, I mean, it's all terrible, right? But God, God is ultimately protecting us from all of that. So even they are created realities. Huh? So they're not the final reality. We don't have good gods and bad gods. Huh? All we have is a good God, and that good God sustains us. So even Leviathan and Behemoth is under control. Huh? Under control. So in the creation stories, you know, God creates the waters above, waters below, and then He creates the sea creatures that are going to inhabit the waters. Well, some of them are birds, but some of them are also Behemoth and Leviathan and the sea monsters all in their place, right? So it's still the problem of evil, you know, and how we kind of, uh, you know, work this reality, but they're, they're less, right? They're always less than the good God and the beautiful God and the creative God who sustains us and even from the beginning is a God of love. So our creation stories you have to kind of work on, right? But I think that, you know, what they intended to say, I think will fi still fit into our, uh, our own vision of an evolutionary kind of world and a, uh, and a good God. The other thing that I think is interesting in terms of creation is that we begin to see how, um, you know, uh, we are, you know, part and parcel of that creation in a, um, in a special way, and that's how the creation story works. But you've got two creation stories, right? And I guess one becomes more important than the other as we keep moving along in our evolutionary theory. But we had one that we could describe as anthropocentric. And, of course, the big complaint right now is that we're too anthropocentric, you know, and we were so anthropocentric, which means that it's human-centered. We were so human-centered that we saw ourselves as different from the rest of creation that's out there, you know. Well, we have a creation story that does that, and it's the second creation story, right, where everything is created in function of the man, right? So the first thing you have is, you know, water starts coming out. In, in the second, it's in chapter 2 of Genesis. Water comes out in this parched earth, and then you already have a human being, and then the human being gets a garden, and the human being gets animals, and then the human being, the man, even gets a woman, right? And, you know, but everything is in function of the human being that, that is there. And, uh, and so it's anthropocentric. <clears throat> but that anthropocentric story comes only after you first have chapter 1. And chapter 1 is a big cosmocentric story. In other words, in the first chapter, you have all of creation given a great deal of time, and it's all described as good. You know, every day of creation, God looks at it, says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. You get the point. If you've heard it four or five times, it's good, right? So ultimate hope, love, everything starts from a God of love, however we're going to picture it now with Darwinian theory. 
but it's a good God huh, who creates it all. And then human beings come out of all of that. Now, human beings are distinctive. Human beings are now coming to self-consciousness and free will, so there's obviously some differences that are going on there, and that's described in the story because God changes the formula, right? So in every story, God just says, let there be, let there be, let there be, you know, it all works out really nicely. And then when we get to the human beings, first of all, they're a second creation on the same day, right? So we're going to get all the animals and the living creatures, but out of the living creatures, we're going to get a second round and then human beings. So they're not the same as the other living creatures, right? They're, they're going to be different because we're going to have another round to create them. And then what God does is God changes the formula. Before God creates them, God says, let us create. And God does some deliberating, right? And everybody wants to know what's the us, you know, with the one God. And we say, well, maybe it's the royal we or the editorial we, you know, we solemnly declare. So God says, let us solemnly figure out what we're going to do here. But in any case, after all of that deliberation, then God says, all right, now we want man and woman, huh? and creates them equally, huh? which is interesting. So women are not subordinate to men, as you could read perhaps in the, in the second story, if, depending on how you read it. But in any case, you've got, you've got a, a, a special sense of creation. You have mutuality. Huh? You have a sharing. You have the, the start of community life, which is really important with man and woman you know, that, that are created equally, and they're both in God's images, and all of that is a special round. Huh? But So there's something unique, and there is something distinctive about human beings, but they're part and parcel of this whole process. right? So it's a cosmocentric story in which all of creation has its importance, and then human beings come in the middle of all of that. right? And so the cosmocentric story is the one that we kind of you know go towards, I think, with even more insistence now, with Darwinian theory. So I've made this point already in some of the earlier lectures that when we think about um, human beings, we ought not to see ourselves as kind of separate over here. You know, you get all of creation and then we come along. And I, what I'm picturing especially all the time is, you know, God says, all right, now we've got really special human beings, so I'm going to pop a soul in here. You know, so we, everything else kind of evolves. And then over here, you kind of evolve, but at a certain point, God comes down and does stuff, right? Well, if we're going to be consistent that everything is, you know, descent with modification in a struggle for existence, huh, that we evolve the way we got there. So our heads got bigger, the brain got bigger, you know, the larynx got changed, you know, we started to walk upright. In other words, all of that stuff was a long, long period of time. In fact, they, they talk about hominids, you know, in the beginning. It, didn't, it wasn't just man, huh? it was hominids and some of them ended up dead ends. I think the poor Neanderthals, you know, didn't, didn't quite make it. And, and there was, uh, you know, they talk about Homo erectus and Homo ergaster. And, uh, you know, there, there are about five different categories and some of them were dead ends. And then we came along, you know. But, but somehow, uh, you know, everything that we, we move towards, even coming to self-consciousness, is all part of the evolutionary process, right? But that self-consciousness gives us a certain dignity. It gives us a certain transcendent dimension that now creation, becoming self-conscious, has now been able to recognize this transcendent reality to get meaning out of all of it and to do all the stuff we've been doing for three weeks here and now the fourth week, you know, trying to figure out, you know, how to give meaning to creation and coming to that sense of God's awareness. But it's all a gradual process that I think is important. 
So I don't know how they would have understood that, you know, in their cosmocentric story in chapter 1 of Genesis, but they certainly saw human beings within the process of all of creation, although they're kind of at the apex and they're, they're, they're distinctive and they're special, but they're not, you know, another creation someplace else. So the cosmocentric story is important to put the context around the anthropocentric story. So uh, you don't want to say that human beings are just, you know, the same as apes or plants or something else, but we've got a lot in common, right? But then we're distinctive, huh? but we're also sharing. Huh? So those things, I think, can still be read in a creation story, uh, even though we might, um, you know, we have to kind of reread them in the light of Darwin and our own uh, information, and they're obviously coming out of their science. But I think the points they're trying to make are still, are still valid and still important for us. Okay? So all of that is what I would call the, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the beginnings of, of creation. So we have a, uh, an important place in it. Uh, matter is, is not sufficient. You know that there's something that sustains it and there's something more. We don't have gods elsewhere in terms of material creation, but that God is beyond all of that. All of that, I think, is, uh, is important. <clears throat> I think one of the other things that comes in, in our um, creation stories is also the sense of a, um, a free gift, huh? that everything is gift. And that's what I've been describing as uh, contingency in some way, but that ultimately everything comes from a God who is effusive of love and that every, everything that is given to us is gift uh, that we need to appreciate and, uh, and develop and uh, to grow for. I think uh, if we see all of that, it helps us to begin to avoid um, dichotomies. In other words, uh, you know, if we saw creation stories before, we might have seen, you know, um, uh, what they were trying to fight with creation stories was the dichotomy of matter and spirit or the dichotomy of a material world and then a divine world. No, it's all, you know, a reality infused with the divine, but that in fact you know, there's complementarity in all of these things. God is sustaining the material world, and then within that material world, there's a great deal in common, and there's a, a great deal of commonality, although you can have distinctions. So equality is not sameness, but I think um, uh, we need to recognize the equal worth of everything within creation and avoid dichotomies. <clears throat> so if we took our stories before with a great deal of, of, you know, we didn't see how those stories were kind of pushing us past the dichotomies, we would always have this sense of power and weakness, higher levels, lower levels, spirit, body, male, female, you know, constantly doing dichotomies and then kind of working them in such a way that always one side of the dichotomy was always the weak side, right? So you have power and weakness, and then that got translated in terms of male and female. It got translated in terms of spirit world and material world. So if we begin to see the unity of all of this and, and a God that permeates all of it, I think it moves us to a, a deeper sense of equality, which is very important. Uh, you know, when the Pope develops all of that in his encyclical, uh, you know, he tries to make these points. Uh, first of all, he says that the... Uh, the material world, first of all, is not the divine world, right? So there's a distinction. But that divine world that permeates, you know, all of the created and material world begins to treat everything as having dignity and worth. So one of the things that we would have done before was to always see how everything else is just at the service of us, right? It's all anthropocentric. And so everything is always at our service. So I, 
I always have this uh, really, it's kind of a sad story and a funny story at the same time. I had a, uh, uh, you know, a high school kid whom I knew, you know, we used to go out and torture squirrels and, you know, do other things with them. He said, well, animals are made for man's pleasure, you know, and so you do whatever you feel like doing. Well, you know, we kind of carried that out in a lot of ways, uh, you know, of kind of seeing the, the, the other parts of creation as inferior to us. We would talk about our inherent dignity, right? We had inherent dignity because God created us and we're special, but now what we need to see is that everything has dignity, right? So even apes have dignity and plants have dignity. So, you know, we wrestle with now how do we respect that kind of dignity and, you know, in, in the descent with modification, a struggle for survival, you know, they're still recognizing that, you know, things need other things, huh? and that, you know, we're not now all going to be vegetarians, and we're not going to just let, you know, plants grow wild. I mean, we do farming, and uh, we eat animals. So, I mean, you know, we wrestle with all of those things yet, but there's still nevertheless an inherent dignity and a respect that needs to be given to all of these aspects of creation, huh? that everything has worth and dignity. So all of that, I think, are, you know, I think our creation story would, would talk about although we have to picture it, of course, in a different way from the way in which they would have done that in their, in their creation stories. Some of where the, the Pope goes in the encyclical that's kind of interesting with all of this in terms of dignity and worth is to see how you really have an overlap and that there's really a convergence on what we would call the eco, ecological concerns you know, with justice concerns. Huh? So a lot of our concern for human beings and their involvement with the world, he, for instance, when he does creation stories, what he does is he kind of draws up the, the common use of the world's resources. Um, and that if we're dealing with equality and, and the dignity of everything, then we need also to see how every human being needs to share and participate in all of creation. And then, you know, he just kind of keeps moving along with that. And he says, and that includes, of course, finally having the ability to own land and to be able to kind of cultivate that land. And, and then, of course, you can see him picturing, you know, South America and Africa and other places where, you know, 2% of the population owns all the property and everybody else is a migrant, you know, or a tenant. And he says, you know, we have to recognize, you know, and he quotes earlier papal encyclicals that there's a social mortgage on private property. So we don't eliminate private property, but private property is not so we divvy up the whole earth, and some people have their little chunk of the earth, and nobody else touch it, you know, and then if I've got my capital, I just deserve to make more capital, and if I have to use other people to make more capital, that's tough luck, you know, for those other people. He says, no, no, there's a social mortgage here, and we all, all own the earth, and we're sharing it. But we need private property because we take better care of things when we own them than when when everybody owns everything, nobody takes care of anything, right? So we have private property. But that we're always doing that at service for everybody else, and that whatever we own is ultimately for the service of other people. Uh, so that, that there's some kind of equality that's going on in there, although it's not that everybody is equal or everybody is uniform, and it has the same thing. But in any case, what he's doing, he's kind of moving from the environmental concerns to justice concerns, huh? and the sharing of land and... Uh, and then he makes the point about how a lot of the ecological issues ultimately impact on the poor, right? So what happens is the environmental issues end up being described as eco-justice. Huh? Eco-justice is always the important issue. Uh, it's all one big reality. 
So you can't handle environmental issues without handling the issues of the poor and uh, social justice and land use and things of that sort. And then by the same token, in the other direction, you can't handle a lot of the justice issues without handling the environmental issues. So all of these things are becoming one big reality. And if you picture how creation is moving along, you know, and how we begin to function within creation, we begin to function in creation through our own ingenuity, through technology, through our use of land, uh, through our own development of, uh, you know, material goods and all of that. But everybody needs to be involved in it. Huh? So the environmental issues become eco-justice issues, and all of that gets to be an important uh, dimension. So, so all of that, I think, is, uh, you know, what we could say happens from the origins, right? So this is a God who starts off as a God of love with all these implications for creation as it begins to come along. Now, if we move in the other direction, then we say, well, where's it all heading? Well, you think it's bad enough trying to figure out the past. It's even worse trying to figure out the future, right? But, and so what, what we do is we kind of fall into apocalyptic imagery. We fall into all kinds of pictures of what the end is going to look like. But I think that, you know, a basic sense of continuous creation and then everything we have kind of extrapolated out, you know, to try to figure what it would be like at the beginning, if this is our experience in the present, all of that, I think, is transferred in terms of the future. So I have no idea what it looks like. I have no idea, you know, what's going to happen. But science is already telling us, although now it's in billions and billions of years and who knows when it's going to happen, but science is telling us that everything is wearing out. Right? So it's part of our scientific uh, you know, laws of nature, entropy. Right? Things are slowing down. Things are going to wear out. Uh, part of our experience is that things die. You know? And then we say, well, now, where's all this going? Well, again, we don't have any kind of you know, uh, neat way of describing it all, but our faith experience is telling us that God possesses everything. Right? so that everything is going to be contained by God, everything is going to be drawn up into God, and the very concept of God as the origin of everything leads us automatically to picture that the God who is the origin of everything has to also be the goal of everything, right? So that if everything is not just starting with matter, but that there's something that sustains it and underpins it, and we've got a basic trust that that is a loving God huh, that is doing all of it, then it, it leads us automatically to recognize that the source of everything has to also be the goal of everything, right? So, so God is not only source and origin, but God is also where everything is headed. And so our basic sense of love and trust is telling us that everything is headed back into God, and that if we do know we have a contingent universe, the only thing that science could tell us is everything's going to come to an end. Now, we don't know, you know, these ends, you know, and how they work, we might have multiple universes, and, you know, what goes on here might end up into another universe, and so you say, when is this thing going to end? <laughs> but the one thing that we have certainly, you know, as part of our insight, is that we're all contingent, and if everything's contingent, then everything is being drawn back into something that is not contingent, right? And so if everything starts from love, it's going back to love. So our own picture, ultimately, of what's going to happen is that we're all being embraced by this God of love and we're being brought into this God of love. Now, we have different ways of picturing that in biblical texts, and in fact, we can have positive and negative scenarios, but in the end, it all turns out to be positive. Huh? But we've got you know, some images like prophets 
or some images like uh, Jesus uh, images of the the wedding banquet and the uh, you know the the final feast and uh, the final uh, you know kingdom of God are all the positive images, huh? And we could have a very positive image about where everything is going, huh? That in the end it all moves along well and it goes up into God and you know creation is transformed finally where God is all in all, huh? Those are Paul's images, you know. Uh, that uh, Jesus is the first fruit of the new creation, right? So Jesus in his own reality is now transformed fully into that life in God. He's caught up into God again. This is the resurrection of Jesus. He's now caught up into that life of God. He is a presence within us and we're being transformed day after day into that reality of God. Our present reality is telling us we're being drawn into love. Our future reality, as we picture it, is that it will simply be a continuation of that being drawn into love. And then on the other side, we have apocalyptic. Apocalyptic is all doom and gloom kind of stuff, you know, where evil is going to try one more time, or the new creation is going to reach a few more dead ends, and what's going to happen is going to be one big cosmic catastrophe, right? If everything gets blown to smithereens, huh? Now, you know, that's getting quite relative, too. I mean, even if we blow ourselves to smithereens with this, this tiny little planet, you know, in this gigantic universe, and so I'm not sure what kind of damage that's going to do anyway, but, uh, but in any case, you know, the apocalyptic scenario is that everything is going to, you know, just be one big cosmic catastrophe, but even apocalyptic always has a sense that cosmic catastrophe is not the last step, right? So we might not do very well. We might ultimately wreck everything, That's the other side of our ecological stuff right now. People saying, no problem, no problem. And it may be too late when we find out there is a problem, right? And we may simply destroy everything. But in the end, our vision is telling us we're going to be drawn up into God, right? And that that finally, even in apocalyptic imagery, God always wins, right? So the sea monsters, the beasts, the dragons, and everything else, you know, that look like they're winning out, always lose in the end, right? So even apocalyptic ends up being positive, but our scenario where everything is going is that it could also be cosmic upheaval and destruction and all kinds of things before we get to the final reality. So you can take your pick. We've got positive, you know, we have optimists and pessimists, and uh, I suppose we've got our own pictures about where it's going. But in the end, I mean, there's a basic trust and there's a love, and everything that we know from beginnings and from our own present experience is telling us that's going to be drawn up into God. Now, I don't know personally what we're all going to look like, but what I do know is that, you know, if God is always the transcendent reality behind everything, then God is more than personal, right? So why do we have a personal God? Well, I don't certainly picture a personal God as as a person like you and me, you know, so we've got all of us and then God kind of sits next to us as a person. God is personal in the sense that he is underneath and, you know, and underpins all personhood. So God's a person in a totally different way from the way in which we are persons. But what I can say is that if we know what personal relationships are and we know what love is and all of that, God is not less than that, right? So God at least has to be that much. Although God, of course, is even more than personal as we know it. But there's all of that. And so in the end, I think everything is drawn up into God and God's personhood. So I have no idea what all of this looks like. I have no idea what we're going to look like. I have no idea how everything goes along but we're all going to be drawn up into God's personhood, right? And we're all going to be drawn up into this personal relationship of a God who cares about us, who knows us, who loves us, and that nobody's lost. 
And if all our experience is telling us from the very beginning we're all equal, then we're all being brought up. But if we begin to recognize that the whole universe, the whole universe has this sense of dignity and worth, and every part of the universe is reflecting part of God, then all of that's being brought up also. So in the past, I left animals behind. And I didn't care too much about what was happening to material creation when I got caught up into God, right? Soul's going to be saved, you know? Didn't care too much about body, right? Now I think even pets are going to come along with us, huh? So I got a whole new vision of what's going to happen. Even the dogs go to heaven, okay? So, you know, in some sense what we have is that everything gets caught up into God. Remember last week I told you about the spare pelican huh, who gets thrown out of the nest. <laughs> so Elizabeth Johnson says even the spare pelican is caught up into God, right? You know, and, and everything that looks like it is, you know, part of losing in the, the struggle for existence is all caught up into God. So I don't know how. I don't know what it looks like. Don't ask me what a risen body looks like. You know, Paul says, don't ask. Huh? And nobody knows. And, uh, you know, Teilhard de Chardin has a vision, you know, of moving kind of into more consciousness so that, in, in fact, our new kind of existence is more kind of a the, the world of knowledge and love, huh? And caught up that way into God. So I have no idea. But somehow we're not going to be less than we are huh, in our reality. Caught up into God who is certainly not less than what we know life to be right now. And that somehow all of that is possessed in God. So it's again, it's a sense of hope. It's a sense of love. It's a sense of basic trust. And the rest of it is just one gigantic mystery. right? But I think that transcendent reality is giving us that sense of hope and trust. So whether you have a pessimistic or an optimistic view of what's going to happen, I think in the end we're all drawn up into God, who is the source and origin of everything, and because of that, he's the goal towards which everything is headed. So Teilhard, you know, de Chardin, you know, famous paleontologist, Jesuit, you know, trying to dealing with science and, uh, and religion, says that he thinks we are kind of moving along in our evolutionary process from the lithosphere to the biosphere to the noosphere, right? So lithosphere is before you had those slinking things coming up onto the earth, you know, the first bacteria and uh, living life. So it's just stones, rocks, and everything else is a lithosphere. Then you get to the biosphere, huh, where now we've got, you know, living reality, and we're part of all of that, right? But now that living reality may be moving to a new stage in which now self-consciousness is developing more, where that, that sharing of intellect and will is beginning to develop more, and we're being drawn into a, a greater complexity, but also a greater unity, and that perhaps our evolutionary steps now are into the noosphere, whatever that looks like. Some people get all excited about that as saying, well, that's the Internet, you know, and that's social media, and that's, you know, all the ways in which we've now got the extent of, of knowledge and information is all this stuff that is just infinitely expanding. So who knows? When you're in the middle of evolutionary process, you have no idea what you're going to look like or where it's going to head. But, you know, we're certainly not the end of it all. And it, it, doesn't, it didn't stop here. So, I mean, who knows what we're going to look like, you know, as, as things keep moving along. So, in any case, uh, you know, all we can say right now is that beginnings are good. Our present experience is basically love and, and goodness. Then we're heading towards something that is also that same kind of thing. And we're all going to be caught up in the God who is the source and origin of everything where it's all heading. So in any case, that I think I would call God the Father. Huh? Call it God the Mother, right? But it's all going to be in terms of mythology. So apocalyptic is myth mythical, creation stories are mythical, but those myths, I think, can get us a lot of stuff here. Huh? But the stuff they're giving us is stuff that I think is compatible with science, and that is ultimately giving us a vision that uh, 
you know, gives us a hopeful sense of what uh, what life is all about. So I want to give you a couple of minutes for questions. So, yeah. Um, we're just studying uh, Revelation, the very end, just of, I guess it's his... That's vision. apocalyptic, yeah. Right. Um, and so I guess that was um, another description, I guess, of... The new world or the new... You could call that the new creation. The new creation. Yeah. And of course, they have no idea what it looks like. So you have beasts and monsters and they get overcome and then a new Jerusalem comes out of heaven. Well, we know, you know, that's not a literal reality, but, you know, they're grappling with how to do all of this. And in their own way of doing it, you get a whole book of Revelation. And of course, some of the book of Revelation is positive and some of the book of Revelation gives you that negative view. You know, the beasts and monsters look like they're winning. And our only, you know, our guess is, well, how much do they win? You know, do we finally, with a nuclear holocaust, blow up the whole creation, or our little part of it anyway, or do we ultimately overcome that? So we don't know. And apocalyptic literature can give you both those scenarios, but they always have a lot of cosmic catastrophe and stuff like that. So that's their way of trying to deal with it. How's the Catholic Church, if it has yet, and it's a giant, you shared with us the Pope's uh, trying to help us all embrace the yeah. earth as God's creation and our responsibility to it. But the overall Catholic Church reaction to Elizabeth Johnson's thesis <coughs> or proposal, mm-hmm. and uh, what do you see emerging there? And second, do you embrace her? You've done a wonderful job of yeah. her. Oh, well, I, I, I like do, Johnson. Do you I wouldn't her? bother talking about a book if I didn't think it was worth anything. Well, you know, I think when you, when you talk about Catholic population, I think Catholic population probably mirrors the population at large. So, you know, you probably have some people who think that, you know, creation, uh, what's all this big concern about ecology? I mean, you know, these things happen all the time. You probably have people like that in the world. I, I do know, uh, at least one statistic I saw, is that the Pope's encyclical at least changed about 10% of the population. So, you know, that's hopeful, you know. And he probably encouraged, uh, you know, the, the big conference they had in November after the encyclical came out for them to sign a treaty, you know, uh, an international treaty to try to start working on some of this stuff. So I think things are moving forward, but I think they move forward in the Catholic population the way they move forward in the world at large. So... Uh, you know, Catholics just mirror the rest of the population. I always joke about the Catholic vote. You know, I say, well, which vote? You know, and, and so people are always talking about, well, the Catholic bloc is important, but the Catholic bloc is not unanimous. So, like, you know, they fall over the lot. And but the Vatican has not taken or portions of it. Well, I, I think some of this stuff, a, a lot of this stuff, um, I, I think even the, the Vatican would take. You know, social justice issues are, are very much to the fore. Uh, in, in Catholic teaching, you know, social justice issues, and even the conservatives like that stuff, you know. So I think the Vatican is much more supportive of this kind of stuff, and you have cardinals that keep advocating it, and they've had, uh, you know, commissions and study groups and others that are kind of advocating it, and uh, parishes kind of pick it up. And, you know, these are one of the places where both conservatives and liberals and fundamentalists, you know, and other groups of Christians can get together on a lot of things because they don't have to handle doctrinal issues or biblical interpretation, you know, and stuff like that. So I think, you know, there's more possibility for unified thinking on all of this. 
And I think in terms of Catholicism itself, even a lot of conservative cardinals and Curie people and others, I think would take this a, a lot more quickly than they would about whether you should ordain women deacons. <laughs> Although there's even a start on that. Yeah, but <laughs> that might be a longer battle. <laughs> yeah. In describing God as creator, uh, sustainer, non-intervention, mm-hmm. uh, how do you dovetail that with the personal God to whom we pray for personal things? Sure, sure. Well, I, you know, my, my shorthand way of describing all of that, you know, how do you pray to a God, you know, with all of this, is that Jesus has a statement in Luke's Gospel that says, ask the Father for anything, and he'll give you the Holy Spirit. And then people say, well, I didn't ask for the Holy Spirit. <laughs> but I said, but that's what our prayers are doing. Huh? What our prayers are doing, first of all, is they're, they're recognizing that we belong to each other and that we need each other. And in fact, God wants us to, to pray for one another because God wants us as a community to care for a community. So that's already an important dimension of prayer, that it may not be changing God because that God doesn't need to be changed, but it's changing us. Huh? So that's important. But I think the other dimension also is that when we are praying to God, uh, particular petitions and particular needs are simply expressing that we are contingent beings and that we really belong to God, we need God, and that God, in fact, is a loving and trusting God who is caring for us. So every prayer, even when it's specific, is simply an opening of ourselves to God that says, I really need you. Now, we express that by particular needs, you know, to God, and and so it's prayer in that form, and then God gives us what ultimately is our sustenance, encouragement, peace, support, you know, so he gives us the presence of the risen Christ, which comes through the gift of the Spirit, and that risen Christ accompanies us in whatever is happening in creation. So I don't think that we pray to God and then God says, okay, I got your prayer, and this time what I'm going to do is now push aside what goes on in the world and creation, and now I'll take care of it, right? I don't think God does that. I think everything keeps going, and chaos is there and everything else, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, and we're in the middle of the prayer, and sometimes it looks like it's a huge catastrophe because that's how creation keeps going, and that's what happens in our own fallibility. But what God does is God accompanies us. We have the presence of a risen Christ who carried his own cross and is now present to us, helping us to carry that cross, and God is giving us all of that so that we're not really going through this catastrophe on our own. So sometimes the catastrophe goes away, and I just say, nice, that's how creation is moving. Sometimes it doesn't go away, and I say, too bad, nice try, but let's keep moving. But God's in all of that. And so in the end, I say, God's giving us the Holy Spirit, which is sustaining us. So our prayers are ultimately for the Holy Spirit, and God is always answering those prayers by giving us the Holy Spirit. So the particular petitions are simply expressive of that wider thing. Okay, last question. I think uh, Amy's standing up. It's time to go. Evil? What? Do you believe in the spirit of evil? Well, I think, I, I do, yeah, I mean, evil is a very real kind of experience. But, you know, we talked about that last, last week. But uh, I don't think evil can be described as something that God created. Uh, and, I, you know, our, our definition of evil is really, really mysterious stuff. Evil is very real, and yet evil cannot be a created reality because then we're going to end up with a botched up creation that God created, and I don't think God did. So, you know, how you define evil is anybody's guess. Some people define evil as the absence of good. 
I'm sure it doesn't feel like an absence, <laughs> you know, but, but that's, you know, it's, we experience it, it's very real, but yet somehow it has to be compatible with a good God. Thank you very much. Wow. Okay.